Blog Talk Radio. I ask my friends who are apologizing for not insisting upon this right, where can the black man look in this country for the assertion of his right if he may not look to the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society? Where, under the whole heavens, can he look for sympathy in asserting this right if he may not look to this platform? Have you lifted us up to a certain height to see that we are men and then are any disposed to leave us there without seeing that we are put in possession of all our rights? We look naturally to this platform for the assertion of all our rights and for this one especially. I understand the anti-slavery societies of this country to be based on two principles. First, the freedom of the blacks of this country. And second, the elevation of them. Let me not be misunderstood here. I am not asking for sympathy at the hands of abolitionists, sympathy at the hands of any. I think the American people are disposed often to be generous rather than just. I look over this country at the present time and I see educational societies, sanitary commissions, freedmen's associations and the like, all very good. But in regard to the people of color in this land, there has always been more that is benevolent, I perceive, than just manifested toward us. What I ask for the black man is not benevolence, not pity, not sympathy, but simply justice. The American people have always been anxious to know what they shall do with us. Everybody has asked the question and learned to ask it early of the abolitionists. What shall we do with the black man? I have had but one answer from the beginning. Do nothing with us. Your doing with us has already played the mischief with us. Do nothing with us. If the apple will not remain on the tree of their own strength, if they are worm-eaten at the core, if they are early ripe and disposed to fall, then let them fall. I'm not for tying or fastening them on the tree in any way except by nature's plan. And if they will not stay there, then let them fall. If the black man cannot stand on his own legs, then let him fall also. All I ask is, give him a chance to stand on his own legs. Let him alone. If you see him on his way to school, let him alone. Don't disturb him. If you see him going to the dinner table at a hotel, then let him go. If you see him going to the ballot box, then let him alone. Don't disturb him. If you see him going into a workshop, just let him alone. Your interference is doing him a positive injury. Let him fall if he cannot stand alone. 
black man cannot live by the line of eternal justice, the fault will not be yours. It will be his who made the black man and established that line for his government. Let him live or die by that. If you will only untie his hands and give him a chance, I think he will live. He will work as readily for himself as the white man. Now a great many delusions have been swept away by this war. One was that the black man would not work. He has proved his ability to work. Another was that the black man would not fight, that he possessed only the most cheapest attributes of humanity, was a perfect lamb or an Uncle Tom, disposed to take off his coat whenever required, hold his hands and be whipped by anybody who wanted to whip him. But this war, this war has proved that there is a great deal of human nature in that black man. And that yes, he will fight. of the Dr. C. Robert Jones Situation Report. Today is Wednesday, July 24th. United States of America, planet Earth, third planet from the sun. What you just heard was Anthony Wright, one of our most underrated actors, reciting a speech given by Frederick Douglass in 1865. Frederick Douglass is one of my heroes. I admire him. And I have since I was a child. And I played that, uh, that speech for a reason. Today, I was speaking with a, well, an associate. And my associate chided me for being a Republican and supporting our president. And they stated something I've heard quite a bit from blacks, liberals. I need to, I need to know my history. And of course, whenever I hear that, I chuckle. <sighs> because if... And when it often occurs that another black person would tell me I need to learn my history or know my history, immediately it is revealed that they don't know our history. Because if they did, first, they wouldn't be Democrats. And second, well, I don't know. But there are a couple of things I want to talk about before we get into the Mueller matter, and that is the fundamental injustice of what 
a lot of the 2020 Democrats and some in Congress are pushing, and that's called, well, reparations. A lot of you out there, you've heard about it. You know what it's about. But I'd like to talk about it for just a few minutes, and then we'll get into the good stuff. Now, granted, many, if not most of the people who advocate reparations by the United States government to descendants of slaves mean well. We'll take that at face value. However, implementation would actually be mean and unjust. And here, here's why I say that. In fact, well, such reparations would be far more unjust to more innocent people than just to descendants of slaves. Yeah. Most fundamentally, most fundamentally, the the beneficiaries would not be people aggrieved themselves, but rather distant descendants aggrieved of aggrieved individuals. That makes sense? The people who would be paying the reparations would include an extremely high percentage of people directly aggrieved. Descendants of people who did not live in the United States during the period of slavery. And even descendants of people who lived in the United States at that time but who did not own slaves, including descendants of slave owners. Such descendants likewise may never have owned slaves. Many have opposed slavery and may have gone out of their way to help slaves and former slaves to a life of freedom. How do we know who's who? And aren't we so far removed from the times of slavery? How is it that we're, me specifically, benefiting from a life that I never knew? I was never born into it. I never suffered the horrors of slavery. Neither did my dad, my mom, my grandfather, his father. So who am I to say, oh, I deserve reparations? Because I could, I suspect that my great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather would not be, I, I believe they'd frown. If, let's say, the government said we're going to give $50,000 to each black person living in the United States, I think my great-great-grandfather would be appalled if I accepted reparations for something that he suffered for. I don't know. But here's another reason. And I'd like to cite some names for you. Listen carefully. Anthony Johnson. John Kasor. John Punch. William Ellison. Denmark. Vesey. 
1600s to 1670. These are all black men, African Americans, if you insist. And they all have something in common. They were all very rich, very black slave owners. So let me just touch on one of these men, my favorite, Anthony Johnson, 1961 to, I mean, 1600 rather, to 1670. That's how long he lived. He was a black Angolan known for achieving freedom and wealth in the early 17th century, the colony of Virginia. He was one of the first Negro property owners and had his right to legally own slaves recognized by the Virginia courts. Mm -hmm. Held as an indentured servant in 1621, he earned his freedom after several years and was granted land by the colony, which he made good use of. He later became a successful tobacco farmer in Maryland. He attended, or rather t attained, great wealth after completing his term as an indentured servant and has been referred to as, quote, the black patriarch, end quote, of the first community of Negro property owners in America. Now, let's get to his early life. Johnson was captured in his native Angola by an enemy nation and sold to Arab slave traders. They sold his services as an indentured servant, Antonio, as he was called, to a merchant working in um, Virginia. I think it was called the Virginia Company. Now, he sailed to Virginia in 1621 aboard the James. The Virginia Muster Census of 1624 lists his name as Antonio Not Given. Recorded as a Negro in the notes. Historians have some dispute as to whether this was the Antonio later known as Anthony Johnson, as the census lists several Antonios. This one is considered the most likely, though. Now, Johnson was sold as an indentured servant to a white planter named Bennett to work on his Virginia tobacco farm. Such workers typically worked under a limited indentured contract for four to seven years to pay off their passage, room and board, lodging, and freedom dues, that kind of stuff. In the early colonial years, though, most Africans in the 13 colonies were held under such contracts of limited indentured servitude. With the exception of those indentured for life. Now, they were released after a contracted period, with many of the indentured receiving land and equipment after their contracts expired or were bought out, not a bad deal. Most white laborers in this period also came to the colonies as indentured servants. That's right. You heard me right. Most white laborers during this period also came to the colony as indentured servants. Now, Antonio almost lost his life in the Indian Massacre of 1622 when his master's plantation was attacked. The Pathan, 
who were the Native Americans uh, dominant in the Tidewater of Virginia, were trying to evict the colonists from their lands. They attacked the settlement where Johnson worked on Good Friday and killed 52 of the 57 men there. The following year, 1623, Mary, a Negro, arrived from England aboard the ship Margaret. She was also brought to work on the same plantation as Antonio, where she was the only woman. Mm-hmm. Antonio and Mary married, as you might suspect, and lived together for more than 40 years. Sometime after 1635, Antonio and Mary gained their freedom from indenture. Antonio changed his name to Anthony Johnson. Johnson first enters the legal record as a free man when he purchased a calf in 1647. Johnson was granted a large plot of land, farmland, by the colonial government after he paid off his indentured contract by his labor. Now, on 24 July 1651, he acquired 250 acres. Wow. Not bad. 250 acres of land under the headright system by buying the contracts of five indentured servants, one of whom was his son, Richard Johnson. The land was located on the great uh, Nawastock Creek, Nawastock Creek, which flowed into the Pentagonal River in Northampton County, Virginia. And in 1652, an unfortunate fire caused great losses. Mm-hmm. Johnson applied for to the courts for tax relief. The court reduced the family's taxes and on 28 February 1865 exempted his wife Mary and their two daughters from paying taxes at all. Huh. Remember, this is a black man in 1652 receiving justice. Huh. Imagine that. At that time, taxes were levied on people, not property. Under the 1645 Virginia Taxation Act, all Negro men and women and all other men from the age of 16 to 60 shall be judged taxable. That means you can tax them. Everybody following me so far? Mm-hmm. It's unclear from the records, though, why the Johnson women were exempted. But the change gave them the same social standing as white women. That's true. I, I need to know my history, though, don't I? Who were not taxed. During the case, the justices noted that Anthony and Mary have lived inhabitants in Virginia above 30 years that's what that means and had been respected had been respected for their labor and known service hmm know your history black man When Anthony Johnson was released from servitude he was legally recognized as a free negro he became a successful farmer, and in 18, um, 1651, he owned 250 acres, right? And, in addition, the service of five indentured servants, four white, 
and one black. Now, this is important. Four white and one black. In 1653, John Casor, a black indentured servant whose contract Johnson appeared to have bought in the 1640s, approached Captain Goldsmith, claiming his indenture had expired seven years earlier and that he was being held illegally by Johnson, a neighbor. Now, Robert Parker intervened and persuaded Johnson to free Kesor. Hmm. So, wait a minute now. Anthony Johnson had five indentured servants, four whites and one black. And he kept, apparently, according to court documents, the black seven years past his ending of service. Hmm. Now, Parker offered Kesor work, and he signed a term of indenture to the planter. Johnson sued Parker in the Northampton Court in 1654 for the return of Kesor. The court initially found in favor of Parker, but Johnson appealed. In 1655, the court reversed its ruling, finding that Anthony Johnson still owned John Kesor. The court ordered that he return, that he be returned. Oh, and the court dues had to be paid by Robert Parker, or court costs as we know today. So not only did Parker have to return Anthony Johnson's property to him, a black man, owning another black man, suing in court to have that black man returned to, quote, indentured servitude, end quote, or slavery. And to add insult to injury, Robert Parker had to pay court costs. Now, this was the first instance of a judicial determination in the 13 colonies holding that a person who had committed no crime could be held in servitude for life, which means that Anthony Johnson was the first man in all 13 colonies to hold another man in indentured servitude for life. And that other man just happened to be a black man. So, Anthony Johnson was the first man in the 13 colonies to own another man, a black man, for life. But I just need to learn my history, right? So, Kesor was the first person to be declared a slave in a civil case. Now, there were both black and white indentured servants since the lifetime servitude. That's true. Now, 
that, that's, that's, I mean, there's no doubt. But now you know the rest of the story. And this is why I do not believe in reparations. This is why I know my history. I know my history. I know our history. I know everybody's history. Never forget that. Because I dig deep. I'm not this superficial black guy who follows the party line. I need to have my reparations. The white man is evil. No. There are some good men. There are some bad men. And a lot of times, those bad men are so-called men of color. Because now, for some reason, I'm a man of color. I'm not an American. I'm not a black man anymore. I'm not even an African American. I am a man of color. Huh. When that happened, I don't know. I label myself as just a good old-fashioned American. But some would insist that I'm not that at all. That I'm a man of color. Huh. What's next? Well, folks, we'll be right back. The call-in number is 929-477-2219. You're listening to the Dr. C. Robert Jones Situation Report. People come to Internet Radio for any number of reasons. Among the reasons are perhaps they're tired of the pasteurized, homogenized news that they get from their TV. Or some may want their talk radio a little more raw. Well, that's what you get with Internet Talk Radio. Real people with real opinions that give you real conversation. It's not just daddy's talk radio. And it's for people who stay informed and a great way to share ideas and debate issues. Well, let's just say that Internet Talk Radio hosts don't sit in front of the makeup mirror before they go on the air. Internet Talk Radio is a fast-growing new media that allows folks to get around the dinosaur media. We Are America United is a network of patriotic radio hosts bringing you honest discussion and discourse that will keep you riveted all day. Check out radio.waaumedia.com. Freedom of speech, the ability to express yourself, it's a cherished idea, as well it should be. Most of us who live in liberal Western democracies think of it as a basic human right. People have fought and died for it. But now we may be in danger of losing it. The threat is not coming from without, from external enemies, but from within. A generation is being raised not to believe in freedom of speech, but rather that they should have freedom from speech, from speech they dislike. This is a threat to both pluralism and democracy itself. We see this in Europe, where sensitivity-based censorship attempts to ban anything deemed hateful or even just hurtful, and to ban criticism of religion, especially Islam. 
But the United States, despite its strong constitutional protections in the Bill of Rights, is far from immune from the rising trend of suppression of speech, or what is sometimes called political correctness. This is especially true at America's colleges and universities, the place where our future leaders are educated and where you'd expect speech to be the most free. Highly restrictive speech codes are now the norm on campus, not the exception. According to a study by my organization, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, FIRE, 54% of public universities and 59% of private universities impose politically correct speech codes on their students. And thanks to recent Department of Education guidelines, 100% of colleges may adopt speech codes in the coming years. How bad is it? At a public campus in California on Constitution Day in 2013, a student who also happens to be a decorated military veteran was told he could not hand out copies of the Constitution to his fellow students. The objection from the university was not ideological. It was out-of-control bureaucracy imposing limits on speech. That same day, another college student in that same state was told he could not protest NSA surveillance outside of a tiny free speech zone, an area that comprised only 1.37% of the campus. Months later, college students in Hawaii were told both they could not hand out the Constitution to their fellow students and that they could not protest NSA policies outside the school's free speech zone. FIRE took these colleges to court, but the fact that we had to shows you how bad it has become. Recently, students and sympathetic faculty have joined forces to exclude campus speakers whose opinions they dislike. At FIRE, we call this disinvitation season, although the season lasts all year round. Since 2009, there has been a major uptick in the push by students and faculty to get speakers they dislike disinvited. These speakers have included former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, the Somali-born feminist and critic of Islam, Ayan Hirsi Ali, and the director of the International Monetary Fund, Christine Lagarde. And that's only the obvious part of the disinvitation problem. Few conservative speakers are invited to speak at colleges lest they have to be disinvited later. The newest threat to speech comes from so-called trigger warnings, alerts that warn students that they are about to read or hear something that triggers a negative emotional response. A 2014 New York Times article cited the example of a Rutgers student requesting trigger warnings for the classic American novel The Great Gatsby because it, quote, possesses a variety of scenes that reference abusive misogynistic violence, unquote. Recently, Oberlin College attempted to institute a policy that heavily encouraged the faculty to avoid difficult topics and to employ trigger warnings as a means of making classrooms safer. Safety has been watered down to essentially mean the right to always feel comfortable. New demands for trigger warnings are popping up on campuses across the country. Add in popular academic theories that encourage students to scrutinize speech for microaggressions, any statement that might be construed as racially insensitive, classist, sexist, or otherwise un-PC, and it's clear that campuses are teaching students to police what they say. This is precisely the opposite of what is needed. Our society needs candor and it needs freedom of speech. 
not freedom from speech. Intellectual comfort is not a right, nor should it ever be. Not if we want freedom of speech, let's just call it freedom, to survive. I'm Greg Lukianoff, President of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education for Prager University. To subscribe to our YouTube channel, click here. To help keep our videos free, donate here. Say that. Can't say that. Thank you for blessing me. Now I can rhyme on a little big three. We'll be stars again today because we get to play what you can't say. What about. Yeah, that's how we make a living, and you know. Listen to the radio. So be careful what you say on the air. That's art from the hood. So good, saying all can I say no cocker could. Watch your mouth. Be on your best behavior. Think before you speak. Do as I say, not as I. Now, why would we ever? Stop doing this when it pays to pretend to be so this. It's not about the words, the words that you can say. Shell out the box and watch us go away. Can't say that. Can't say that. You can't say that. You can't say that. You can say that again. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back, folks, to the Dr. C. Robert Jones Situation Report. All right, so lecture's over. We know who we are, and none of us are perfect, not a single one. Black people own slaves. A lot of black people did. I just touched on Anthony Johnson and just a couple of others, but guess what? White people weren't the only ones who owned slaves. So I have heard stories that my great great-grandfather owned slaves. Who am I going to pay the reparations to? Myself? Am I paying reparations to who? Who? Because chances are my great-great-grandfather owned somebody's great-great-grandfather who might, you know, have sat next to me early this morning at the dentist office or something. What, what do I, do I get? Do I go for my wallet? What do I do? I don't know. Okay. And I suspect there are maybe not millions, maybe maybe a few hundred, maybe a few hundred. I'll, I'll be conservative. Of uh, what do they call? What do we call now? People of color, because we were Negro, we were black, we were colored, 
We were African-American, and now today we're just people of color. So there might be, I don't know, let's go with, say, two or 3,000 people of color who, whose lineage dates back to someone in the family owning another black person. So why don't I just go into my wallet and give myself five or $6,000 because my great-great-grandfather owned some other people. Or maybe I'll just go in my wallet and just pull out five or six grand and say, hey, I don't know if my great-great-grandfather owned your great-great-grandfather, but here, here's a couple of thou. Oh, I'm sure that'll cover it. Maybe that's what I should do. I don't know. But you understand how this can get out of hand. It makes no sense whatsoever. And then there are people who, black people specifically, and some well-meaning whites, I'm doing the bunny ear thing, who say that, well, the Japanese were interned for much of World War II. There were a great many who were interned for much of World War II in the great state of California and other places, and they received reparations. Yeah, many of those folks who received reparations were actually still alive. In fact, almost all of them were still alive when reparations were decided and they received uh, they received reparations. I'm not sure exactly the exact amount or or how that all went down exactly, but I do know that the majority of those interned during World War II uh, who were interned for the duration of the war received reparations, and they were still alive. Reparations were not provided to their grandchildren, to their children. It was provided to them specifically. Now, if there happens to be some um, slave, a former slave who's still alive, dating back to, let's say, 1865, and just maybe two weeks before the Emancipation Proclamation, if you're still out there, yes, you deserve a, a stash. You deserve you deserve some some jack, some bread. Are you out there? All right. If you're out there, come forward, and we'll go ahead and and kick you down a few dollars here or there. Okay. Now let's get on to the good stuff. Let's talk about let's talk about today's events, which I found to be sad. I found to be sad because you know we all get, we all get older, you know, and 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 I'm no spring chicken, so. Watching my fellow Marine, Robert Mueller, disintegrate into old age instantly right before my very eyes in living color, live, was painful. The Democrats did no favor to themselves or Robert Mueller today. There was no there there. There were no big revelations. It was a complete and utter bomb. My man Donald Trump was was practically giddy. He he, he I saw his step. He there was a spring in his step. He he seemed to have, he seemed to enjoy the whole thing. And he was glad. He even thanked the Democrats for putting Robert Mueller in the position that he was put in. It was amazing, and it was sad all at once. You know, I can understand where Mueller was coming from. Let me give you an example. Turn it back on me, as always. So 
I've been in this underground utility construction business for about a year now. It'll be a year next month. And, you know, there's still, even though it's been a year, there's still a lot of things I don't know about the business. I have a difficult time reading the prints, the blueprints. So I'm looking at the blueprints, and let's say Chris, who's uh, heading out the operations, to, he sends the crews out every morning. He'll say, hey, Rob, check this out. All right, so you got a handhole here. You got a doghouse here, which is a smaller handhole. Then you've got this cat house over there. Then you've got to pull the fiber, and here are the ends of the numbers over here. So when you pull the fiber through, you're going to put in 15 feet of cable. I mean, 1500 feet of cable, 1500 feet of pipe. You're going to cross over here, and all he goes into this whole thing. And I'll say, yeah, 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 I got it, man. Yeah, all right. So now, as soon as I leave him, I'm like, damn the hell did he just say I can't understand I couldn't what the f- so now I get out into the field somewhere out in Atlanta it's hot as hell I go look for Paco Francisco is his real name look, look for Francisco and I say Francisco here's what we got to do check this out look, tell me what you think because I don't know what the hell is going on right so Francisco looks at the plans and he's like oh yeah we got to do this we got to do that and he'll say this is the way you want it done, right? And I'm like, yeah. Because <laughs> I don't know. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, that the, is it going to work out? Is it going to work that way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's like, so yeah, yeah, it'll work that way. So now throughout the day, he's coming back to me, and he's holding up the blueprints, and I'm looking at the blueprints. I have no idea what the hell I'm looking at. And he's pointing here and pointing there, and he said, it's okay? Um, yeah, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, that's, yeah. You think it's gonna work? Yeah, yeah. It's okay. Yeah, okay. Good, good, good. Go ahead and take care of it, man. We got to get out of here. It's almost four o'clock, so because we got to be out of the uh, city of Atlanta by four p.m. That's part of the rules of the game. So we get back the next morning. Crystal says to me, "Rob, how did it go yesterday? Did you get this that done? Blah 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 blah." Yeah, yeah, man. I got it done. It's all good. Well, tell me what you did, uh, so I'll know. You know, oh, uh. Hmm. Hey, you know what? I, I'll be right back. I got to go out to the truck. I got. I'll be right back. I call Francisco. Francisco, well, you know, explain to me what we did yesterday, and quickly and and as plainly as you can. Francisco explains to me what we did that I'm supposed to already know, and I go back and I regurgitate. Half of what Francisco told me because I forgot most of it on my way back into the office from the parking lot. Chris knows full well that I don't understand what was done yesterday. Somehow I, it managed to get done, so I get the credit. But he knows and I know that I was winging it. It's called fake that shit till you make that shit. So I was faking it and to fake it to make it. He knew. So now let's get back to Mueller. Mueller, in terms of the Mueller investigation and everything having to do with the Mueller probe, Mueller was there in name only, just like me, just like I was in in, 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 in South Atlanta. My name is on it. I get the big prize if it gets done right. I don't get the prize if it's done wrong. Mueller did what he did in name only. 
he admitted that he was barely in any of the meetings at all. He admitted that he didn't take any notes. He admitted that a lot of what was done with that report was delegated to his team, and it showed. Robert Mueller didn't know his ass from a hole in the ground when he sat there in front of Congress. He either didn't know, couldn't recall, decided not to talk about it because he didn't know, and he couldn't – he didn't – fact is, folks, if you didn't see it or listen to it, Robert Mueller stemmed and stammered, and he sounded – he sounded like my he sounded like an old man, a tired old man. This was once a, a great United States Marine. A great Marine. Won the Bronze Star in Vietnam. Has at least two purple hearts. And head of the FBI at one point. I mean, an accomplished attorney, a great man. And I watched him today and he seemed old. And tired. He couldn't remember things. He had to have questions repeated to him repeatedly. And it was such an embarrassment to the Democrats and to Robert Mueller. Now I understand. I understand fully today, as should you, why Robert Mueller was consistent in saying that he would not go – if he were called before Congress, he would not go beyond what's in the report. Because if he did, he would be exposed as not knowing what's actually in the report that has his name on it. So the, the strategy of sticking to what's in the report, which did not work, by the way, fully, was so that he would not be exposed as to not knowing exactly what's in the report word for word because he didn't write it. And who could expect him to? But at least he could have been a little bit more engaged and brought up, up to speed. I mean he had months to be prepared for this moment today, and he did not prepare. And I suspect the reason why the hearing was set back another week was so he could prepare, but he choked. He choked big time. The most important thing Robert Mueller revealed today in his testimony before the House Judiciary and Intelligence Committee was that he didn't really know that much about the work of the investigation that bears his name, that he is prone to senior moments with alarming frequency, embarrassing frequency, that he could in no way have been the actual leader of a large team of high-powered lawyers is now obvious to everyone in cringeworthy detail. I sat there. I watched it all. I stayed. I watched it on Fox News, Fair and Balance. I watched it. It was embarrassing. I felt bad for him. I felt embarrassed for the Democrats who were asking him questions and trying to get him to say things that were inflammatory or anti-Trump. And it just didn't happen. It was so embarrassing. How could – the Democrats must be serious. I don't know. They are desperate to put that man through what they put him through. If, if you don't know what happened today, check, check out the, some news clips from the, from, from, from the news later on this evening. Every liberal news outlet stated – everyone, 
that Mueller was embarrassed. Liberals were beside themselves with grief and trying to find some – I mean ch- ch- check it out. President says uh, Mueller did a horrible job at hearings but had nothing to work with. House Democrats upset. The tweets from liberals were alarming. Representative John Radcliffe said impeachment balloon goes pop. ABC News correspondent says impeachment's over after Mullen's testimony. CNN analysis, Trump is winning war between himself and Robert Mueller after Capitol Hill hearings. Anti-Trump, Harvard law professor Lawrence Tribb calls Mueller's hearing a disaster that helped the president. Wow. Wow. Ken Starr. Remember him from Monica Lewinsky days? He was the um, special prosecutor that called for impeachment of of uh, William Jefferson Clinton, and uh, he stated that uh, Mueller did a grave disservice to our country. Did not ensure staff was fair and balanced because Mueller had a whole bunch of crazy people on there who hated Trump, which was revealed today. Wow. What a mess. It was so embarrassing. <laughs> Take my word for it. It was awful. Yeah, that's right. But now, now that the public can see with their very own eyes that Mueller was at best Mr. Outside, and the story arc turns toward investigating the investigators – that's what's, that's what's happening now because now the Democrats have shot their last shot. Impeachment is dead. All they can do now is try to embarrass the president can repeatedly biting his records and, and holding more and more and more and more hearings. You liberals out there, is this what you voted for? Is this why you voted for Democrats and get, put them in charge of the House? I'm asking you right here and now because are you getting your money's worth? Because nothing is getting done in Congress. Nothing is getting done except hearing after hearing, subpoena after subpoena, investigation after investigation. These folks, their two years are almost up. I mean, well, well, not quite, but you know what I mean. I mean, they're, they're about to go on recess for like six weeks. So they're not going to get anything done during that time. They tried to salvage this debacle earlier today by talking tough. They're done. Game over. How embarrassing is it to be a liberal right now, a Democrat who voted for any one of those Democrats who were involved in those hearings? What a mess. So impeachment is dead now. Game over. Will they still try? Sure. This revelation is a huge problem for the media. That has portrayed Mueller as a legend in his own time, a man of unquestionable integrity, brilliance, and devotion. Their puffery, their puffery has exploded in their faces like an Acme cigar in a Warner Bros. cartoon. It was a mess. 
The entire narrative that the media and other Democrats have peddled since shortly after Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 is busted on a lot of levels. The last gasp of Nadler, Schiff, and the unofficial White House impeachment caucus was the hope that Mueller would use that persona that doesn't exist anymore or doesn't seem so, if it ever did, to sell the public on the notion that Donald Trump is a criminal. Unfortunately, he was clearly not up to the job today. Not today. I remember listening to a Democrat uh, uh, congresswoman who said, I just can't wait. I'm going to have him recite uh, portions of the report out loud to bring life, to bring life to the report so that the American people can see and hear for themselves from the man's own mouth. Wow, that old man stuttered and stammered and couldn't recall. It was so embarrassing. And you know what? It was more than a little sad, and here's why. Because I'm getting older too, and I used to be a stud, and I used to be I used to be able to think quickly on my feet, and I used to be able to talk really fast, and the words would just come out, and I would be making sense on most of the occasions that I that I started speaking. But I can see that, just like with Mueller, my time is coming. Yeah, I make it about me sometimes. It's true. If this can happen to Mueller, it can happen to me. Pretty soon, I'll be like Mueller. Uh, 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 could you repeat that? Could you repeat the question? Uh, where where is that in the in the report? No, that's this is my own question. I wrote it myself. Oh, uh, uh, I don't recall. That that that's not in my purview. That's what's gonna happen to me. I'm gonna be saying. Stuff when I can't come when I think can't think of a, anything to say I'm going to say that's not in my purview. I'm not going to answer that. That's not in my purview. Wow. <sighs> I watched Fox. I listened to MSNBC. I put on. I mean, I put on all the liberal media. I, I went. I went to. I went to all of them, and it was so embarrassing. Those folks were like – they were sad. They wanted to cry. They, their hopes are dashed yet again. My man is Teflon. Donald John Trump is Teflon. And if you had heard my man talk <laughs> about this issue, about Mueller and how he – just how you just screw the pooch, as we call it in the Marine Corps. Wow. <sighs> yeah. I don't know, folks. We live in interesting times. And that's not good. Anyway, it's time to go. So I want to thank you for listening to the Dr. C. Robert Jones Situation Report. There's so many things you could be doing, and you, told, you chose to take the time and listen to my show, and I certainly do appreciate you for it. Over 300,000 listeners, half of them live. I've even got folks listening in Malaysia. Can you believe that? 
Southeast Asia and some other places like that, 3% here, 4% there, but still, that's a lot of people from the country so very, very far away. Nevertheless, it's time to go. I'll see you tomorrow, or we'll talk tomorrow. God bless you, and God bless the United States of America. I'm out.